Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. everyone. Welcome back to Stay in Contagious. I'm Tova Wang, one of the hosts of the podcast, where we talk about baseball and its intersection with social justice and politics. And today was a very special podcast because we are going to be talking to Frank, who you know from this podcast, about his book that's just come out. It's called The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. And I'm joined here by two of my colleagues, Lincoln and Adrian. And I'm just going to start the ball rolling, so to speak, with a sort of overview question. And Frank, feel free to give us whatever overview that you want. So what was the sports revolution of the 60s and 70s? And I appreciate you're also referring to it as the second reconstruction. What, what was that? What is that that you reference in your title? And why do you focus on Texas to demonstrate what the revolution was about? First, thanks, uh, thanks sir, for, for having me to discuss uh, my book. You know, I was saying before we got on, I'm a little, feeling a little heavy because of what's transpired in Atlanta, yet another crime against humanity faced in this country, but, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I, this will lift my spirits. Yeah, the sports revolution is one of those moments in U.S. history where we see the dramatic expansion of, of sport in this society. You know, the 1920s was one of those moments when, you know, Babe Ruth becomes really popular and Major League Baseball becomes really popular, along with college football. I see a similar dynamic happening in the 1960s and 70s in which you're seeing the, you know, the rapid expansion of professional and even collegiate sport, right? This is the period in which stadiums are being built across the country, about 50 or more, you know, between 1960 and, 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 uh, and around the late 1980s, with, uh, culminating with Comiskey Park's second um, uh, iteration. Uh, we're seeing the growth, uh, the, expan the, uh, the growth of new professional leagues like the American Football League. We see the expansion of Major League Baseball. We're seeing the, the nationalization of, of sporting culture in this in this uh, society. You know, uh, partly uh, generated by the, by something we talked about a few weeks ago, the move of the Giants and Dodgers uh, from New York City to the West Coast, right? And Texas comes right along right after that, right? And in fact, the Texas sports entrepreneurs who help shepherd in this revolution in Texas are really building on the models they see uh, with the Dodgers and Giants, particularly as they think about the stadium that they build, uh, the Houston Astrodome that opens in 1965. So you've got this massive growth of the sports industry, you know, in all the major professional sports and collegiate sports in this country. At the same time happening with what you, you call the second reconstruction, right? The expansion of, of, of citizenship rights in this country or the, re, the, 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 the sort of reclaiming of citizenship rights that were lost uh, from the first reconstruction by the civil rights movement, by the second wave feminist movement and other freedom struggles that we're seeing in this period. So this book is trying to bring that political social revolution together with the, the, the cultural revolution of the expansion of sport. And I'm suggesting in this book that uh, these things are intertwined, that part of the reason why we are seeing the rapid expansion of sport in this country is because you have uh, athletes emerging from the shadows of Jim Crow segregation now uh, playing on teams that they have been previously excluded from at, you know, at the professional and the collegiate levels, right? So Texas becomes important to this story because uh, the Texas sports entrepreneur, the sons of the oil barons, the Lamar Hunts, the Clint Murkisons, the Bud Adams, among other people, play a gigantic role in the expansion of sport in Texas. And they impose themselves on the National Football League and create an alternative league in the case of Hunt and Adams with the AFL. Uh, and then we're seeing the sports entrepreneurs who bring Major League Baseball to Houston, then eventually Texas, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth in the early 1970s, right? Uh, so Texas plays a huge role, uh, certainly along with California, in the nationalization of the sports industry. And it allows us also to see how a society that is steeped in slavery, steeped in Jim Crow segregation, steeped in conquest and colonization of other marginalized peoples, is transformed to some degree by, by this, this thing that I'm calling the sports revolution. I took away also that you were talking about 
the different pushes and pulls that led to sports franchises changing their policies, whether it was integration in the stands or bringing in black players onto the teams, both at the collegiate and pro level. Part of it was just because it's good business. Part of it may have been due to outside pressure. Some of it was due to pressure from the athletes themselves at times and how that all those things interacted to expand uh, the sport and at least make some progress in terms of improving race, the issue of race around sports at that time, if that's right. Yeah. Any moral revolution in, in history, certainly the history of the West, right? Whether we're talking about abolitionism in the 19th century or whether we're talking about the, the changing attitudes towards, uh, you know, non-white peoples in the 20th century, you know, has to be set um, uh, alongside and, and or in contextualized with the, the broader economic transformations that, that happen in that moment. And that's the case. We know this uh, is certainly the case in Major League Baseball. When Jackie Robinson uh, is signed by Branch Rickey, that's not just uh, Rickey's moral awakening. It's his desire for talent and to ensure that his franchise uh, is going to be competitive uh, during the 19- late 40s and, and 1950s, right? So you see a similar dynamic in the case of Texas, right? You're seeing Texas sports entrepreneurs, again, many of them, some of them sons of right-wing oil barons, right? The Murkisons and the Hunts, uh, you know, they're the sons of of oil barons who were staunch segregationists. But they want to bring sports to their societies. They want to bring professional sports teams to their societies. And they understand that if they're going to do that, they're going to have to let go of Jim Crow segregation. They're going to have to figure out a way to convince the Texas public and Texas politicians uh, that black players and non-white players are essential uh, to building up of Texas cities along the lines of sport uh, in this growing uh, region that uh, people call the Sun Belt, right? I mean, this is a, a period of tremendous growth in Texas until the 1980s when the oil economy collapses, which we can talk about later. So the economic transformations are critical, right? Um, and and it is interesting that, you know, that these particular figures, you know, uh, Lamar Hunt, for example, you know, plays a, a significant role in uh, creating the American Football League, which you know signs more black players than the NFL did and actually challenges the NFL supremacy as a result of that because he's got talent that the NFL was slower, slowly, uh, slower to incorporate. And in the case of the Houston Colt 45s, Houston Astros, you know, it's very telling that these folks like Rory Hoffines, the person who's the, really the genius behind the, the Houston Astrodome, he understands quickly that he needs black support for the bond initiative that's going to that's going to devote $31 million to building the Houston Astrodome in the early 1960s. And so I've got this great photo of these black local black uh, leaders at the groundbreaking, uh, you know, part- participating in this monumental moment in Houston history because they are able to secure desegregated seating and desegregated employment in, in the new stadium that, that was eventually opened in 1965. One of the things I think that this book does is it tells a different Texas story for someone who's a non-Texan like me. I've been to Texas once for about 36 hours. You know, I just don't know. I know. And and the state is presented in both popular and, you know, political culture a a specific way, kind of a right wing, you know, (laughs) that that kind of oil baron who shot J.R. to go way back. But, you know, cowboy hats, Ted Cruz, all that stuff. Um, And you're trying to tell another story about Texas, I think. So my question is, you know, how kind of flesh that out, but also does the story that emerges here, it's the sports revolution. That's the title of the book. But is it the Texas revolution? How does all this change Texas beyond sports? Yeah, great question. So I decided to write about Texas in part because I worked and lived there for 11 years. Uh, I still have deep connections to the region. I have in-laws in Texas. You know, I never really spent any significant time in Texas before I arrived from my, my job in 2004 uh, when I lived in Austin all those years. But I had visited various parts of the state. Not all the parts. It's a big state. Uh, so, uh, you know, most of West Texas I did not see. But it was very striking to me that uh, you quickly realize that the stereotype of Texas, uh, certainly that, you know, the East Coasters have, for sure. I see this all the time in New York. You, re- you see the stereotypical portraits of, of Texas in the New York Times all the time, is that there's this long history of resistance and social movements uh, launched by uh, Black and Mexican or- origin peoples in that, in that society, right? Uh, and I saw that and experienced that in my day-to-day job. Uh, I saw that um, in my research and I thought, you know, uh, that why not tell a story of Texas that centers this, this, the, the region's marginalized peoples? You know, um, I had a very powerful experience when I encountered um, this group of black former head coaches and athletes called the Prairie View Interscholastic Coaches Association. 
they were all about preserving the history of African-American athletics during the Jim Crow era, right? They'd have these banquets. They would honor, you know, all these people who get overlooked in, in the master narrative of Texas sports history. I mean, Texas has a very illustrious sport history. And, you know, that was a really interesting uh, learning for me. Uh, we wound up doing a great conference in 2013 on the history of, of, of athletics during, uh, in African-American communities during the Jim Crow era. And that signaled to me that there were stories to tell that often get overlooked when we look at Texas, right? Uh, you know, as we've said before, Texas is a state that's Republican and red, but it's that way uh, in large part because it's gerrymandered that way, right? It's, it's, it's that way in large part because of voter suppression. It, like other regions in this country, has its own histories of social movements. And, 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 and sometimes we see that in politics if we pay close attention. You know, so I, you know, I think you could write a similar book about other states in the South but what makes Texas interesting is that you have both, you know, a, a, a history of African-American athletics and you have a history of, of, of Latinx, what we're calling now, or Mexican-American uh, communities in sport. That, and I wanted to tell that story, you know, both of those stories in this book, alongside the history of, of, of uh, women in sports, too. And in that sense, Texas is both a Southern society and it's a Western society in an American West sense. It's a borderland society that's part of Mexico and it's part of the... Uh, you know, the, the, the region that becomes part of the cotton belt uh, in the south, the other the eastern parts of the state, you know, and I think that's what makes it interesting as a case study. So that alongside the undeniable impact of Texas athletes and sports entrepreneurs and the nationalization of sporting culture led me to think that this was a compelling story that should be told uh, you know, by focusing just on Texas. One of the things that um, and just following up on what you're just saying, Frank, that this book does that is very rich for those who are interested in sports and sports history, but important is how you tell a story that it's not just about players. It's about fans. It's about executives. It's about stadiums. It's about cheerleaders. What inspired that kind of approach to getting at the sports revolution? Yeah, great question. You know, the easy thing for me to have done was just to write a book about football in Texas, which would not have been of interest to Lincoln Mitchell. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> it shouldn't be the only criteria for writing a book, but it should be one of your top two or three. But 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 no, but I think I think I, I take seriously the person who doesn't care about football. You know, there are a lot of people who don't care about football, right? I mean, of course, we think of uh, Buzz Bissinger's classic Friday Night Lights, which then became a TV series, which is actually excellent. And the movie and everything else, it's its own sort of uh, industry of sorts, uh, Friday Night Lights, uh, you know, and so, you know, th that would have been easy to do. It would have been easy to focus on one franchise, right? I mean, it would have been easy to focus on Houston. Houston just has a fascinating sports story. I just scratched the surface in this book. But I wanted to take on the task of writing a book about sports, uh, you know, using a multi-sport approach, you know, and that's partly because I wanted to make sure that women were actors in the story. I wanted to make sure that I talked about fans. I talked about the, you know, as, as, as comprehensive a manner of, of what makes sporting culture work. The athletes, the executives, the managers, the, the sports media, the people who do the labor, the people who are dancing on the sidelines. You know, I wanted all of that in this book because they all, it all forms part of, of what, what makes sports unique, right? And to tell just a, a more partial story, you know, I thought it would have been incomplete. You know, now naturally, the, as a result, some things don't get addressed in this book. But I think I was really committed to telling a story, with, you know, incorporating as many aspects of, of, of sporting culture as I could uh, from a race standpoint, a gender standpoint. Uh, and, and also just so that the reader understands, you know, all the elements that make sports the unique industry that it is and what makes it actually appealing in a lot of ways, I think. And that, and that, and that's why I focus a lot also on, there's a, a lot of play by play in this book. You know, I really wanted to draw upon uh, kind of sports writer traditions, uh, in allowing the reader to see that, you know, um, Ferguson Jenkins is a, is a Hall of Fame pitcher because he was a skills craft, craftsman. And I spent some time talking about those skills, you know, on the mound, uh, you know, along with other athletes in the story, too. So so I'm really trying to bring uh, as much of a comprehensive picture of, of, of the sporting revolutions, the sports industry, as I could in this book. So it's funny because picking up on that, just like in Lincoln's book, actually, the stadiums are major characters <laughs> in this play. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know. We are about baseball in this group, so switching to the entirely the baseball category here, I was fascinated by uh, the story of the Astrodome and also about how it ushered in something that I hate, which is luxury suites and <laughs> all that kind of stuff that is just a distraction to me. Um, but also the story, which 
I live in D.C., but I didn't really know the uh, the full story here about the move from the senators to Texas to become the rangers in this post-suburban part of Texas. I had not known about the pretty wild reactions <laughs> of senators fans in D.C. I was I was truly impressed. Yeah, yeah. So we we talked a lot about ballparks in our last uh, uh, podcast, and and I'm endlessly fascinated with stadiums. And I wanted that to be part of the story, partly because when I started doing the research for this book, you know, this sort of this Adrian's part of the story. So we co-edited a volume called Beyond El Barrio, Everyday Life in Latino America, came out in 2010. And we, co- we co-authored an essay on, uh, on the politics of the reconstruction of Yankee Stadium in 2007, 8, um, you know, the, new, the stadium that's now the new version of Yankee Stadium. And we set that against uh, the controversy of uh, Daniel, Daniel Monte, the Dominican Little League pitcher who was uh, caught for you know, being too old for competing in the Little League World Series as a way to tell the story of baseball in marginalized communities in, in, in the Bronx. And so, you know, I was working on that piece with Adrian, and then I started messing around with the archives of the Houston Astrodome, the architectural firm that designed the dome that happened, just happened to be at the Center for American History at University of Texas, Austin, when I was teaching there. And I just, I just got hooked right away because I was really struck by the, the monumental impact architecturally of that facility, right? It's a facility that, as we know, was the first indoor dome stadium built in this country, the first with artificial turf. Uh, and it is the first that has luxury boxes in the modern sense of the term, so that every stadium afterwards, virtually, that's built in this country includes, you know, uh, luxury boxes. And luxury boxes take up more and more real estate uh, as, as stadiums, uh, as more and more stadiums are built, right? I mean, what makes the Astrodome unique is that it, it really appealed to a cross-class, cross-racial constituency, so that working people could actually go to those games in ways that they can't go to Minute Maid Field or, you know, whatever the, the ballparks are called now. So you've got this, like, hyper technologically advanced facility in Houston. And then you've got this glorified modern league park uh, where the Rangers moved to in 1972 in Arlington, what was then known as Arlington Stadium. And I love juxtaposing those those stories because in one place you've got an air-conditioned facility, which is really important for Texas because it's freaking hot. Certainly over the summer, you know, and then, in, you know, these poor people in Arlington who want to see Major League Baseball have to sit in Arlington Stadium, uh, you know, over the in the summer and, and, and during the daytime and certainly at night. It's hot, you know, all the time in Texas in the summer. It doesn't really matter if the sun is down uh, that much. And yet, you know, the Rangers somehow survive in this, you know, makeshift facility. Uh, they're owned by Bob Short, this greedy guy who buys them in 1968. Lincoln knows uh, Bob Short uh, later when he tries to buy the Giants in 1976. You know, Bob Short is one of these entrepreneurs who's looking to make a buck. And he basically takes the franchise away from Washington, even though it, you know, it had just, it was just recently reestablished as a, as a, um, as an ex, as a, um, as an expansion franchise uh, after the, 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 the first senators leave from Minnesota. And, uh, and you know, they've, they've got a new stadium, which is then called RFK Stadium, which is, you know, barely alive now. And he's like, you know what? This stinks. We're leaving. And he moves them. Not to Arlington, Virginia, which you would expect, but he moves him to some place called Arlington, Texas, and he gets a sweetheart deal, you know, from the from the mayor Tom Vandergriff, and uh, and then he sells the team a couple years later uh, to Brad Corbett, and he makes a nice profit for himself. So, you know, the Rangers story I found just fascinating uh, because it, you know the move generates enormous debate and anxiety about the fate of Major League Baseball. Right. The senators leaving the nation's capital was a major, major blow to Washington, at least certainly Washington sports fans. And it provoked this whole discussion about, like, how can Major League Baseball leave the nation's capital? And it does. And it stays away from the nation's capital until the Montreal Expos move there, you know, decades later. Right. Um, so so that that story in and of itself and then the way the, the fans reacted uh, during that last game where they basically ended the game before the game ended by storming the field and destroying the, the, the it's a field. Great story. I love that story. And it's possible for you to listen to the entire uh, broadcast on YouTube, which I did. Uh, and that's how I reconstructed what happened there that night in which everybody rebels against Bob Short that night, including his announcers in the booth. So, yeah, the Rangers story is interesting because, you know, it reflects this kind of you know, the anxiety about Major League Baseball at that time, it shows you also, you know, as I say, how the Rangers are able to somehow make it in, in, in Arlington. And, you know, and that's, that's kind of a big gamble that, that Short takes, taking them down there to a, to a region that was, that was really into football and not so much uh, Major League Baseball. And yet it works for the Rangers uh, over time. I wanted to go back to something Adrian mm-hmm. raises that also has to do with the Rangers, which is this question of fans. And I have to say that your description of the Spurs yeah. fans was fantastic. I knew nothing about that, and reading that was just a was just a blast. And I don't particularly like basketball, um, but that was I man. I like the Warriors, but you know that was 
That was fantastic. But what, what, and then you, you talk about the Rangers and, you know, when I learned about baseball, the Texas, they were in Texas already. They were the Texas Rangers. And I'm, I thought Ranger was the guy in the park with the hat who like explained to you what kind of tree something was, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a hippie kid from California. Turns out it's something totally different, which I didn't learn until I was maybe 13 or 14 years old, right? And, and, and last week, we spent some time talking about team names. And, and this seems like a striking team name, and maybe we should explore changing it. But, but the other fan-related question I wanted to ask you is that as these teams in Texas begin to have more African-American players, which gives them an advantage on the field over those teams and leagues that hold on to these racist ideas and don't, mm-hmm. right? And I'm thinking particularly of the Astros because they had an enormous number of, you know, Jim Wynn is a borderline, this is the late 60s, a borderline Hall of Famer. Joe Morgan is, in my, for my money, one of the greatest players ever to play the game. John Mayberry was pretty good uh, at, in those moments. I'm going to touch on another uh, player, African-American player of that era later. But yeah. how did the white conservative fan base, which was a big part of the sports fan base, how did they process that? With, not just with the Astros, but generally. So I'll, yeah, great questions, Lincoln. So first on 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 the Spurs fans, so I have up close uh, and personal relationships with Spurs fans. They're in my family. <laughs> uh, they all live in San Antonio, and I and I had a chance to experience, uh, and I do still, uh, Mexican American uh, fandom fan culture around the Spurs. Uh, every time I'm I'm there. But I wanted to write a, a, about Latino fans. We don't imagine spectators, uh, you know, uh, as anything but white men, right? I mean, the fact that they're blue collar. San Antonio is a blue collar city. It is a city of working people, right? Uh, and the Spurs, because they were this fledgling ABA franchise, I was trying to make it. You know, this is a story of farsighted management. You know, they they allowed, you know, created a space for for all kinds of fans to come and, and party and hang out and raise a raise a ruckus in the stands at Spurs games, and that's part of the reason why they're successful, along with the talent that they had with people like George Gervin. And so, you know, they had a fan club called the Baseline Bums, which I think still exists. And I sat with them at a couple of games in 2014, and they were very much domesticated. They were not as rowdy in 2014 as they were in 1975 when they were, you know, throwing beer cans onto the court uh, at the opposition. But, you know, if you watch some Spurs games in that era, you, you see the unmistakable imprint of Mexican-American culture. You know, even in its modern commodified form, you know, you walk into the Spurs arena now, it's called the AT&T Center, of course. Uh, you know, you know, you know where you are. It's not one of those cookie cutter kinds of places. And I feel like that's the legacy of that period in which, you know, Spurs fans are, you know, they still they still have among the cheaper tickets in the league. And it's, there's no doubt that the, the Mexican origin community there, Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants, immigrants, you know, love the Spurs, you know, and that's also because they've been good. They've won a lot of championships in terms of, um, you know, fans um, in, in other parts of Texas. I think what we're seeing in this period is an unfortunate, you know, is a, is, a, is, a, is a positive from this period, but also an unfortunate legacy in which when integration happens, white fans are able to compartmentalize their feelings about black people in general with their feelings about them on the field. And I think we see this to this day when, when we see people react to, you know, uh, black players protesting, right? This you know, shut up and play, just provide us entertainment and that's it. And, you know, that's, that's, that's an unfortunate legacy of the, of the integration era in all of these sports, right? Uh, whether it's professional, collegiate, or, or, or otherwise. So that, you know, I think, first of all, not all Texas fans are racist, right? Including the white fans. And second of all, they're able to make the shift. They're able to love Earl Campbell and, uh, and not uh, allow their daughter to marry somebody like Earl Campbell, right? I mean, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of shift that we see in American culture, I think, in that period. And, you, and it's most palpably seen in these places that have been historically segregated, you know, legalized segregation. But I think you see this all over the country. Um, and yet black athletes, this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. Black athletes, you know, at all levels, you know, are able to black male athletes, I should say, you know, are able to kind of, you know, have access to certain aspects of white male privilege, right? So the fact that, uh, you know, many prominent black stars wind up marrying or dating white women, you know, and I have no problem with that myself, but like, that's clearly part of the kind of signal that black athletes have arrived, right? I mean, I'm thinking about the OJ Simpson figure, of course, among many, many people like that, you know, even other folks who we don't associate with, uh, you know, violence against women, who are even progressive black athletes, you know, I, to be perfectly frank, I mean, that's part of the, 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 the signal that they've arrived in American society, you know? So, so you know, the, the workings of race and gender in this dynamic are very complex, but I, I really do think that that's what we see as a result of uh, what, what happened with integration in sports in this country at that time. 
Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. That came up um, during, you know, as part of the story of Hank Aaron as well, and his uh, when he was in Milwaukee, and how he felt he was treated, and the place he was able to live in Milwaukee, and his fears about going back down south. But what I hear you saying then is that bringing in black players, as great as they were, only had limited impact on the culture and politics of the state. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that that far because I, I do think you're seeing significant political developments. I mean, I'm not a political historian, but um, you know, it, it's not by accident that their ascendancy, the the ascendancy of, of black athletes, is coinciding with you know the rise of, of black and and uh, and women and political figures, you know, from across the social spectrum, right? So you know, 1981, uh, Henry Cisneros, who we might remember as the former uh, HUD secretary, who was disgraced by his own uh, political scandal, uh, you know, in that period later on. But, you know, he's mayor of San Antonio in 1981, right? So, I mean, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing, you know, a similar dynamic, you know, politically speaking, even as the state politics are being reconfigured from the segregationist democratic, you know, uh, dominance to the, you know, what becomes the Republican right-wing dominance in Texas, you know, during this period, right? I mean, you can trace George H.W. Bush's political career by just looking at this period, looking at that transformation. So, and a lot of that is happening alongside sports. It's not by accident that Bush and folks like that really make a point of using sports events as part of their statecraft, you know, uh, and they're able to incorporate black athletes, you know, and, and, and package them that in a way that's palatable to a conservative Christian, you know, um, fan base. But that's not the only Texas fan base either. You know, I think that even as Republicans are able to hold on to power or, or really expand their power, you know, throughout this period that I look at from the 1960s until, you know, the present. So again, Part of what I just heard you say, Frank, and I, I want you to kind of reflect on this or just re respond to it, is part of the sports revolution that we see take place in Texas is how white executives, white university administrators are able to guide the incorporation of the black athlete in ways that they could extract certain political benefits for themselves or advantage or such. Political benefits and economic benefits. You're exactly right. Like, like all the integration stories, Adrian knows this very well. Everybody on this podcast knows, right? It's a care carefully orchestrated affair, right? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, for example, let me just give you a, a brief example. Um, you know, uh, when you look at what happens with uh, Southern Methodist University football, when, uh, when they signed Jerry Levias as, as the first black scholarship football player at SMU in 1964, it gets some coverage, but not that much because, the, you know, the, they, the, the press gets signals that we don't want to draw too much attention to this. In fact, when, when integration happens in Houston, you know, the, the local authorities really shut down the press altogether. And there's very little reporting on, on integration because, you know, because they don't want the right wingers and staunch segregationists to get upset. So, you know, even in the non-sporting world, you're seeing that dynamic in Texas and other parts of the South, I'm sure. But there's no question this is very carefully orchestrated. But they're also responding to the sit-in movement in the South. They're responding to the civil rights movement. It's not a, a mastermind scheme. It is a response to the changing political social circumstance, which is partly shaped by the black freedom struggle. And to a lesser extent, the Mexican-American struggle, or, or, or along with that, I should say, you know, at that time, right? So it's a combination of you know, you've got this influx of money into the sports industry with these Texas oil men and other businessmen. You've got the civil rights struggle pushing, you know, for, you know, widening conceptions of citizenship. And then you've got this motive to, to put, you know, your city on the map through sports. And all those things come together and, and produce, you know, what, what winds up becoming this revolution that produces some significant change. It's not by accident that you know, you know, why is it that all of a sudden in 19, you know, uh, 69, 70, that the Texas Longhorns finally decide a, to sign a black player? That's a significant development that's happening in the Southwest Conference of college football, right? And we see a similar dynamic happening, you know, with Major League Baseball. In fact, the Astros, you know, they have these black players, but they don't, you know, Roy Hoffines really was about the Astrodome. He really didn't care much about his team, and that's part of the reason why they made those stupid trades. You know, they trade a lot. They trade. They trade. They trade Mike Cuellar away in 1968. They trade Joe Morgan away. Yep. They trade. They trade Jimmy Wynn away. They trade. They they keep J.R. Richard in the minor leagues for a long time before he comes up in the late 70s. Uh, and I think Speck Richardson was a GM at that time who winds up, you know, showing up in Lincoln's Giants story 
you know, the Astros, you know, you know, they they have black players, but they're they don't they don't incorporate them fully until you know really Cesar Cedeno shows up and then Bob Watson and other people in the in the mid late seventies, you know. So um, it's very much an orchestrated affair, but it, it's also because these people are, are responding to the changing political circumstance of the period. You know, Frank, you, we've you've um, mentioned a few times about how you also bring into this the impact of the women's movement, yes. uh, and feminism into the uh, sports in in Texas, especially with respect to tennis. But I can't help wanting to focus for a moment. He knows what's coming uh, <laughs> on the the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders which was a very fascinating chapter to me because I remember all that and I remember the movie <laughs> and, the winning uh, TV movie starring Jane Seymour yes yeah and I mean I swear I had I, I still I'm still damaged <laughs> from the entire experience as a girl young girl watching this but you give it a more nuanced treatment and and discuss how in some ways it was a, a symbol of empowerment for women, but it's really hard for me to go there, honestly, thinking about them. And then it led me down the rabbit hole of thinking, well, I, I always kind of try to brag that um, there really aren't cheerleaders in baseball. Mm-hmm. And then I discover, in fact, that the Texas Rangers currently have cheerleaders. What did I wrote? The six shooters? Is that what they are? I didn't know that. I mean, at I least until that. recently, I was Googling this to find out, oh, does, are there any MLB Because I was going to ask you, are there any MLB teams that have cheerleaders? Because I have a real issue with that. And then I, I came across these six shooters. <laughs> well, you know, Bob Short, you know, you know, so, you know, part of the promotions that major league teams are doing in that period, is, you know, Charlie Finley does this with the Oakland A's. There's hot pants night, you know, uh, letting women show up in hot pants or get admitted free. And then they parade around the ball, the diamond. You know, Bob Short does this to try to drum up some fans. You know, they moved to Texas and they don't draw any more than they did in Washington because the team sucked. <laughs> so uh, they sucked until Ferguson Jenkins came along and they started winning some games in 1974. And then people came out to see, you know, talent, not eye candy. Right. So but the Dallas. Ca- you don't think Jeff Burroughs is eye candy? No, Jeff. Well, for some people, he might be. Yes, sir, but I don't think that's what baseball fans. I'm sure there's some good looking fellows on that team. Even Toby Harra. Toby Harra. Ferguson Jenkins is a good looking guy. Toby Harrow might be the greatest player in baseball history. His last name is a talent. Those are good looking guys at that team. I'm sure people and, and this for is a word you will only hear in a sports <laughs> podcast that's <laughs> saying contagious. But I'll tell you what, you know, when I first decided to do this book, one of the first chapters I envisioned was on the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders because I want to tell the sports story from all angles. And you cannot deny the importance of cheerleaders and dancers to sporting culture. Maybe not so much in Major League Baseball, but certainly in football, right? And certainly in Texas, right? Uh, so before Title IX is passed, right, the Educational Amendments Act of 1972, obviously opportunities for women to participate in sports were really limited. But one of those areas where they were able to be uh, um, uh, in, in sort of incorporated was through cheerleading. And cheerleading, you know, is certainly a, a competitive sport today. Uh, but even b- before it becomes, you know, c- professionalized and, and made into a competitive sort of uh, endeavor, it was a space for athletic, you know, uh, women who were perceived to be conventionally perceived attractive to, to you know, populate. You know, certainly once cheerleading becomes overwhelmingly feminized in the 19th, you know, in, in the mid 20th century. So uh, and then, you know, doing and then if you actually watch what cheerleaders do, you know, it's hard work. It's athletic labor. You know, so I'm telling a story of athletic labor in this book. And some of those laborers are people who danced for the Cowboys in the 1970s, right? And if you look at, you know, what they're doing and how they're treated and how they're undercompensated, you know, I, I'm trying to make a persuasive case that these women who we deride as eye candy, as symbols of, 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 of uh, you know, objectification and exploitation, and indeed they were, were also athletes in their own way. Uh, they were also skilled performers. They had to, you know, rehearse and perform in hot dance studios for hours at a time. And they, all they got was $15 a game. $15 for each home game every year. So that's like seven games in, in the late in the 1970s when the when the season was 14 games until it went to 16. So they got an extra game in, in 1978. So, you know, so the story I tell there is about, uh, you know, the exploitation of these women, but also the, the importance of the cheerleaders in, in the making of the Dallas Cowboy brand as it becomes America's team in the 1970s, which you probably remember, too. And yet, you know, if you pay attention to the stories of the women themselves, you know, for them, you know, dancing for the Cowboys was a, was a kind of type of rebellion against you know, Bible Belt conventions. And also, you know, they had a significant, they had a fair amount of diversity in that 
in that group, you know, uh, because they were trying to appeal to a wide array of uh, Dallas um, Cowboy fans. And the Cowboys were smart as a management. So, you know, Tex Tran was a genius, uh, the, the longtime president of the Cowboys. He's, he's able to do things that a lot of major league, you know, executives don't know how to do, which is to market your team. What he's marketing is sex. There's no question about it. And certainly feminists at the time were not happy about this. The, the, the cheerleaders become a lightning rod for second wave feminists with good reason. Uh, and I tell that story around the debates around them in the 1970s. I tell the story of them posing for Playboy in 1978, a group of cheerleaders who rebel against the NFL. And then, they, of course, they're fired as a result of that, the so-called great cheerleading, cheerleading war of 1978. So the story is about objectification, and exploitation, but it's also about the, you know, the importance of, of females' labor in, in, in sporting culture, and it's often overlooked. But it's still undercompensated, of course. Just a quick comment on this America's mm -hmm. team. I, I remember in 1982, after Joe Montana uh, hit Dwight Clark in the end zone, uh, and they won that 49ers, beat the Cowboys, and Montana was asked after the game, what do you think of beating America's team? And he said, now they can watch Super Bowl on television with the rest of America. <laughs> yeah, it's a great moment for San Francisco fans. I'm not a Cowboy fan, so I I, um, I, I remember that moment fondly, uh, you know, uh, rooting for the Niners, you know, sitting in our in front of our black and white TV. My, my dad was a Niner fan for some reason. Uh, he loved Joe Montana. And I remember watching that game, you know, in the kitchen while we were eating dinner. That's still the biggest moment in San Francisco sports history, bigger than anything that the Giants ever did, frankly. The catch, yeah. absolutely. So knowing a little bit about uh, Frank's rooting interest and now hearing <laughs> more about his father being a, a 49ers fan, so you guys must have lived on the West Coast side of the co-op city, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. He, he has secondary teams. He's a New York fan, my father. He's a New York fan for sure, but he, lo he loved Joe Montana. He loved the Niners. He loved Walsh. He was, he's really into them. He really was. He, yeah, he, he was into the Niners uh, at, at that time, but he's a, you know, he's a New York fan. But yeah, you know, I've always had a fondness for California teams. That's why Lincoln and I bonded right away, I think. You know? uh, I mean, I, I loved the Oakland A's. I was a gigantic Los Angeles Lakers fan. You know, I think it's because there's a variety of reasons. I mean, I love the A's because I love their uniforms. I love Ricky Henderson. You know, so what, what attracted me to some of those teams was style of play, or the, the, the actual characters who were on those teams, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson for the Lakers. You know, I love Vita Blue, the first game I went to. Uh, you've heard this story. I will tell it again. The, the, well, actually, the second game I went to, Major League Baseball. The first one I went to at Shea Stadium was in April 1979. The terrible New York Mets were playing the San Francisco Giants, and Vita Blue was on the mound. And I asked my dad, "Who's this guy pitching for the Giants?" And uh, and I said, "He said Vita Blue," and I didn't know what the hell. What that name was <laughs> odd. Of course, Vita is Vida, which is yeah. a Spanish word for life. But you know, we pronounce it Vita. And I was compelled by that man on the mound. I loved his uniform. I loved the way he pitched. He got shelled by the Mets that night somehow, and he didn't have a good year that year. But uh, but yeah, no, there's a lot of California allegiances, I guess, in our in our in our household in the Bronx. <laughs> so now now you talk about Vita Blue, I want to circle back. You spent a whole chapter talking about the Texas Rangers. And Vita Blue, Ferguson Jenkins, like they're part of this generation. And one of the things the book does in, in devoting a chapter to the Rangers is kind of tells us the story about what it means to be a black athlete in baseball in Texas. So, you know, what motivated that chapter and, and those points you had to get across? Yeah, I want to, you know, I, I really like Dan Epstein's book on uh, on Major League Baseball in the 70s, uh, Big Hair and Plastic Brass, because yeah. he calls attention to a period that, you know, that is often dismissed in major in baseball history. I think a lot, you know, a lot of baseball writers wax poetic about the 50s and the 60s. And then the 70s is the me era and free agency and these entitled black athletes take over the game uh, and they're getting paid too much money. And I wanted to tell, I wanted to re-examine that period, you know, and I wanted to do it through the lens of a Texas franchise, right? Uh, and I want to put actors like Ferguson Jenkins and, and even Alex Johnson, uh, and of course, Rogelio More, Roger Moret, as he's known in Major League Baseball, uh, in the story. Because I want the reader to imagine what it must have been, and Lenny Randall, what it must have been like to be a black athlete, in, you know, in, in suburban Dallas-Fort Worth, trying to, you know, make it, you know, you're getting paid more money, perhaps, particularly after free agency, uh, comes in. But, you know, there's a lot of resentment towards you. You know, there's a lot of resentment to these athletes who are getting paid. They're getting resentment from the fans. You know, even for the sports writers who cover them, you know, they're, they're willing to talk about Lanny Randall in one way in terms of his exploits on the field. But the minute he starts crowing about his salary, then they come for him, right? You know, the Dallas-Fort Worth um, 
uh, uh, journalism scene is really robust. You've got a bunch of papers at Fort Worth Star um, Telegram. You've got all, all the Dallas papers. They're all covering these teams. They're all looking for an angle. And they're all over these guys. You know, Jenkins is interesting because he's really likable. He's not a controversial person. He's also really good for most of his years with the Rangers. Uh, and he's largely responsible for their revival in 1974. You could argue that he should have gotten the Cy Young Award that year, but he didn't get it uh, because Catfish Hunter was maybe just a little bit better than him and his team won the division. But, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're in this space where they're, they've been, you know, black athletes on, in Major League Baseball have carved out a space throughout the league. This is the, the point where the, this is the highest percentage of sort of African-American players in Major League uh, history. You know, this is 1974, 75, around there. And yet they're, they're playing for fans that like them, but also resent them, you know, and I wanted to kind of bring that dimension to the story. And, and you see that in the way in which the press reports on uh, Lenny Randall's case, when he beats up his manager in 1977, you see that in the ways in which, you know, they, they'll extol the, the, the attributes and the talents of these players, but they're also ready to sort of, you know, criticize them for being entitled, for daring to want to be paid what they're worth. You know, these are dimensions, of course, we, you know, dynamics we see to this day. And yet, you know, they, they're able to sort of make a living and make it, you know, even in these circumstances, in the Arlingtons, in the Clevelands, in the Houstons, and, you know, these towns that are not known for having, you know, large, well, Cleveland has significant black population, right? But I really want to tell the story, and I'm following your work, Adrian, in a lot of ways, of the integration era in the 1970s. I think it's, a, it's an understudied period mm-hmm. because, you know, we, we often stop at the moment of Jackie Robinson or we stop at the Willie Mays story or the Hank, Henry Aaron story, but we don't keep going. You know, and I think there's a lot more to say about Major League Baseball and race in that period, particularly as the free agency develop era starts, you know. So that's kind of what I was trying to do with that, with that chapter. Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes requiere la descarga y registro. African-American baseball players in the 70s in Texas. And Fergie Jenkins, you know, was a great pitcher on his way to the Hall of Fame who has some good years with yeah. the Rangers. Mm-hmm. But for me, yeah. the heartbreaking story, and you mentioned his name, is J.R. Richard. And I actually went online and I pulled up the box yes. score of one of the last times J.R. Richard pitched, which was in Candlestick Park. And fully six Giants reached base in that game, one on an error. He was completely dominant, nine inning, complete game shutout. And I don't think I've ever seen a, a pitcher, you know, that on top of his game, admittedly not against the greatest Giants team. But it's a terrible story, what happens to J.R. Richard. And it really, you know, he is a victim of the racism of the era. And, you know, so this is an African-American ball player who struggled and you know, who struggled and didn't, you know, and and just, you know, the, the, it didn't work out. I mean, they they ignored his illness. You know the whole story, but I'd be curious what your thoughts are about that. I, you know, I, I, I could have kept writing about the Astros. You know, I would like to write about Cesar Cedeno's trajectory, too. You know, he's got an interesting trajectory, not just on the field, but then what happens when him off the field with his uh, mysterious incident in, in the Dominican Republic when a woman he's with is somehow shot and killed. Um, it's an interesting story that re- deserves a revisit, I think. But so does J.R. Rich's story, which I don't talk about. Yeah, so he's he's finally, by the late 70s, becoming the pitcher. You know, he's just a, he's six foot eight, hard, you know, hard-throwing right-hander who just smoked batters, you know, and he was able to gain enough control by then to really dominate, you know, and then, you know, he's having a great year. He has a wonderful year in 1980, the first half. He's a, he's a, he's an all-star. He, you know, he strikes out people, the all-star game in Dodger stadium that year in 1980. And then he starts complaining about, he's got some issues and the press, you know, again, just is so stoked and, and ready to resent black players and to dismiss any, and Latino fe- players faces too, re- ready to dismiss any, any, you know, attempt to claim that they're injured or they can't play. And he's ridiculed, ridiculed. And then he collapses on the AstroTurf in a workout in the Astrodome. And I think it's August of 1980. And that's the end of his career. And it was so bad that the local press apologized, actually. I think one of the newsmen who covered sports in the Houston television networks, I can forget which one, he actually apologized for for not recognizing that Richard's complaints about his health were actually legitimate, you know? So it is an absolutely sad story. It is. Um, 
you know, he's embraced by the Astros later. I went to a game, I think in 2013, where they honor him and stuff. And, you know, he has a rough period off, the, you know, a rough life off the field. He's homeless afterwards. It's a really sad story, but he's rebounded. And, uh, but he's overlooked because his career was cut short, tragically. We talked at the beginning about uh, how much was it outside pressures of these movements? How much was it uh, just a money-making thing? And how much was it pushing by the players themselves? And I, I'm particularly interested in the role of, the athletes, the, the college athletes mm -hmm. who were engaged in this at the time and comparing it to uh, as we approach the beginning of March Madness, the, mm -hmm. the, <laughs> how, how um, student athletes, quote unquote, are uh, reacting to their times both then and now. Yeah, great question. Something I think about a lot uh, and I'm asked about a lot. So I'm glad you're asking me now. You know, the late 60s and early 70s is, you know, there's, there's a broader athletic you know, insurgency going on, you know, you know, uh, certainly speared, spearheaded by black athletes, but it's a cross racial movement, right? I mean, we associate with Muhammad Ali, with Bill Russell, uh, with Harry Edwards and Tommy Smith and John Carlos. But then there's this, you know, a, a bunch of rebellions that are happening, you know, by professional and collegiate athletes across the country, including in Texas, right? And so sometimes that takes, and not just by black athletes, right? I mean, there are white Texan players who are football players who are raising all kinds of questions about their exploitation. You know, one of the people I talk about in the book is a person named Gary Shaw, who was a like a, a, a like a second tier offensive lineman trying to make it on Daryl Longhorn's um, Daryl Royals Longhorn team in the mid '60s, and he writes this book called Meat on the Hoof which has been dismissed as a sort of a, a hatchet job against Daryl Royal, like an ex expose of, of trying to tarnish his sterling reputation. But really, the book is raising all kinds of interesting questions about toxic masculinity, what we would call now, and about the, the illogic of masculinity that guides football culture. And then sadly, he dies later. You know, he's sort of seen as a madman. You know, uh, it's interesting that these sort of rebels are often dismissed as mad. Uh, and I think it's because the culture, <laughs> they're actually telling the truth about the culture. The people who are mad are the people who actually support it in a lot of ways. So, so you're seeing Texas elements of this broader insurgency that takes the form of protests, right, in the game, takes the form of, you know, protests, uh, you know, around the war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of black power protests that are happening and football players are part of that as well. And Jack Scott is an important figure in the story. He's not Texan, but he publishes uh, uh, Gary Shaw's book, Jack Scott, Scott, the athletic activist, who's very much part of that movement at the time. And, you know, I think we're seeing, you know, similar developments here today insofar as you're seeing these solidarity protests like we've seen now around Black Lives Matter and things like that, police violence. Um, but we're also seeing, too, though not enough, you know, uh, protests around the dynamics in the game themselves. You know, I think we're starting to see that in sports like the WNBA, which we've talked about, right? Uh, WNBA is starting to raise questions about the actual, the league itself, the, actually the profession of sports and the continuation of, <clears throat> excuse me, of um, the marginalization of women in sports management and in, and in the, the control of franchises, right? That's, that's a pretty new development. And I think what makes this period distinct is that unlike then, this is a post-Title IX story where you've got women athletes is very much, you know, at the center of, of this current athletic uh, activist movement. And, of course, we saw elements of that in Texas last summer when football players were standing up against some of the racist traditions, like the eyes of Texas uh, uh, alma mater at at at, uh, at the University of Texas, right? So, so you're seeing you know a movement that's picking up on a lot of the questions that were raised at the time. I think there are more things to do, though. I mean, far be it for me to to tell people what to do, but it is great to revisit this moment now. You know, uh, the '60s, '70s moment now, which is why I'm glad the book happened to come out in the midst of this turmoil in our country, because I think that period deserves a revisit. We have to look at the terms of inclusion. We have to look at why is it that certain populations were incorporated and how were they incorporated and what were the limits of that incorporation, right? Uh, and I think so much of what we're seeing in the sports world, which is that, you know, people who respond to athletic activists by saying, just shut up and play or because they, they were willing to see them space on the field, but they didn't want them to be full people and full citizens, you know, as well as being entertainers. And I think that's, that's the stuff that we're seeing, uh, you know, being pushed around and debated today. But I, I was also alluding specifically to college athletes, yeah. And their role in that. And also, you yeah. know, the, to the extent that they are trying to uh, be politically active now as mm -hmm. well and as best they can. It's sort of a, an interesting, I think, resurgence, not continuation. But I could be wrong about I that. I think you're right. No, I think it is a resurgence. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of the, the mobilization that we saw last year was was uh, defeated in some ways when when these big time, you know, uh, college leagues decided to coerce their players, so-called student-athletes, to play during the pandemic. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Obviously, there's been all kinds of challenges to the NCAA's authority 
you know, going back, you know, over the last 10 years with uh, the unionization efforts at Northwestern, with the, the Supreme Court cases, uh, Ed o, the Ed O'Bannon case, you know, with state legislatures finally listening to athletes and trying to figure out ways that, that they can get paid for their likeness, you know, the, the stuff we've talked about before. So, yeah, no, right now we've got a very, uh, you know, the NCA model of amateurism, which was overthrown in other sports, you know, like that's part of the story of the book, how amateurism was overthrown in Texas and in, in tennis. But it hasn't been overthrown uh, with respect to college athletics and remains to be seen how long this model is going to exist. It's untenable, though, as far as, I, as far as I see. Okay, well, apparently we're out of time. And obviously, we would love to talk to Frank about the book and all of his reflections on these issues for hours, and we probably will later. But again, the name of the book is The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics by Frank Ritty. And I found it fascinating, fun. I think everyone else here did too. And Frank, thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for the book and your incredible insights. And um, we will, of course, be continuing to talk about these issues, the issues that we've talked about today throughout our, our podcast, Say It in Contagious. And as Steve would say, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. I don't have Steve for the hokey sign off. Just the hokey <laughs> sign off later. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I don't have to worry about that. Okay. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America, Capital Region, and Bracebridge Hall have helped thousands of patients in the D.C., Maryland area start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at RCA see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service, without all the drama.